All right, 2 Chronicles chapter number 7. I am going to do what Paul said uh, for Timothy to do. He said, uh, you need to do the work of an evangelist. And so my message today is more of an evangelistic style message that an evangelist would preach. And I try to be pastoral in my messages, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, just uh, so today, I just want you to buckle up a little bit. All right. So how many going to get your seatbelt on this morning? All right, good. So just buckle up. God has been working in my heart about this for months. And this message, I, I didn't make this message. This mess, message made me today. And so I hope that it, I hope that it helps you and does a work in your heart as well. Second Chronicles chapter number seven, David uh, wanted to build the temple and he went to God and he began to talk to God. He wanted to build a place that was a permanent location for God to, to meet with man. And God told, told David, he said, you're not going to be able to do it. Your, your hands are bloody. David was a man of war. And he said, I'm not going to let you do it. But he said, I'll let your son Solomon do it. And so David began to prepare. And that was a long process. And so the temple was built, the first temple. And it was uh, probably the greatest structure that's ever been built on earth. There are estimate, estimations of how much it costs to build in today's dollars. It's in the millions, then the billions, they even say. This was an amazing uh, a feat for Solomon. And so they finish the, uh, the temple and they're dedicating the temple. And so here we find Solomon is dedicating the temple to the children of Israel. All right, so we're in 2 Chronicles chapter number seven. Now, when Solomon had made the end of praying, verse uh, chapter six, if you have time today, read Solomon's prayer in chapter six. I wish we had time to, to read it today. The fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled that house. And the priests, they could not enter into the house because of the Lord. Because the glory of the Lord had filled the house, the Lord's house. And when the children of Israel saw how fire came down and the glory of the Lord was upon that house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement. By the way, that's a good place for us to be with our faces to the pavement. Amen. Bowing before our Lord, worshiping, praising the Lord, saying, for he is good. His mercy endureth forever. Then the king made the people offer sacrifices. Solomon offered 22,000 oxen. That's a lot of beef and 120,000 sheep. And so the king and the people dedicated the house of the Lord. And the priests waited on their offices and the Levites also with their instruments of music. The David the king made praise the Lord uh, because his mercy endureth forever. When David praised their ministry and the priests sounded trumpets before them and Israel stood. Moreover, Solomon hallowed the middle of the court was before the house of the Lord, and they offered burnt offerings, fat uh, peace offerings, and the brazen altar of Solomon. Uh, had, and I just skipped back to chapter number six for some reason. No, excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, could you just skip forward with me? I want to go to verse 14. And so they, they dedicated the house of God. And so look at verse 11. And thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that came into Solomon's heart to make the house of the Lord, and in his own house a prosper, it was prosperously affected. So here Solomon finishes the house of God. And the Lord appeared unto Solomon by night and said unto him, verse 12, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among the people. I want you to read verse 14 with me. Ready to begin. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. And seek my face, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. As we begin our prayer revival this week, I wanted to preach a message that was born really out of a, 
time of prayer with God, I believe that the greatest friend of surrender in our life is prayer. Last week, we talked about the enemy of surrender, which do you remember what that was? It was pride. Well, the greatest friend of surrender is prayer, and I believe the greatest friend of prayer is surrender. The two, to do, to do fully each one of them, you must fully do both. And so today, I want to put an exclamation point on this series of surrender as we talk about this thought of revival through prayer. Would you pray with me this morning and ask God to help us today? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today. Lord, the room is full. God, there's always things that we could think about. Lord, I pray that we put our cell phones away on silent. Now, Lord, I pray that we would put the thought of lunch away. I pray that we put our troubles and trials away. Lord, our family problems and work issues away. And Lord, I pray that for the next few minutes together, that you'd help us to focus on your word. I pray, God, that we would listen to the word of God. Lord, I pray that you'd remove me as much as possible from this message. And Holy Spirit, I pray that your spirit would move throughout these pews today, these chairs. Lord, that you would strike at the heart of us. Lord, I pray that we would remove all of our preconceived ideas, all the things that we've heard before. I pray, God, that we would put all those things away, and God, we would listen with hearts and wide open to you to move in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. By the way, we are glad to have uh, Brother Dole and his wife going to be baptized today. And I'm so, I said, we're going to have Brother Dole and his wife be baptized today. We're so excited about that. Amen. And so he's got a lot of family with him today. And so thank you for coming. And we're excited about that. Don't mean to embarrass you, Dan. You can get me after church for that. All right. He was a cook in the Navy. He cooked on a submarine. He's not afraid of anything. Amen. So anyway, here's the question I want to ask for the message today. Can we see revival again? Could we see revival again? Looking around us, I believe the answer, the quick answer to that would be definitely no. As we see what is happening in America and around the world, this downward spiral of morality in our country, and even worse, the church is dancing toe-to-toe with the world as it spirals down. There is no difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. We see these things, and I think if we're not careful, we would say no, revival is not possible. Without a shadow of a doubt, though, that even though revival is impossible with man, revival is always possible with God, because nothing is impossible for God. How many have learned that to be true in your life? Nothing is impossible for Him. One of the issues is our country, or excuse me, our generation has never seen revival, you and I. Revival, widespread revival, hasn't happened in our country for at least 150 years. Is it possible for God to bring about revival again? And my answer to that is without a shadow of a doubt, he can, and he wants to. D.M. Panton said this, revival is the inrush of the spirit into the body that threatens to become a corpse. Reviving again, coming back to life. And may I just say that God can bring the church back to life. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. It feels like it's freezing to me in here. Can somebody look at the, the, the thermostat? Uh, my feet are cold, so you guys must be cold. Don't worry, it'll get hot in just a minute. The issue is, the issue is, we have not seen revival. And listen, may I just say today, and, and I, I was reading a story about a, a tourist group that visited Spurgeon's church 
in England. Now, at one time, uh, Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, would preach to over 5,000 people in this, uh, in this church in England. And now it's closed. The doors are shut. It's a tourist attraction, and people go there to tour it. And so a story was told that a tour group was going through there, and they heard a man uh, crying and, and praying to God. And they went into the auditorium. They saw a man kneeling uh, before the pulpit of Spurgeon, and he was praying, and he was crying out to God, God, do it again. God, do it again. How many believe that God can do it again? Come on now, only three hands went up. I'm worried about you now. How many believe that in and out is good? All right, got you there. Uh, how many believe that God can do it again? Amen. Hey, got you. All right. Hey, God can do it again. God can bring the church back to life. God can bring the sinner back to life. Maybe you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior. God can save you. Man, if he can save me, he can definitely save you. Amen. And so I'm just telling you today, God can do it again. Here's a couple things I want to bring to our, our thoughts today. And if you're taking notes here, number one, we need to remember the revivals of the past. God has done it before. God has done it before. Psalm 77, verse 11, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember the wonders of old. God has done some amazing things, yet amazing things in America God has done. God has done re revivals in the past. I will meditate also of thy work. David says, I will talk of thy doings. God has done some amazing revivals in the past. It was exactly 12 noon on September the 23rd, 1857, when a tall former businessman climbed creaking stairs up a third-story old church building in lower New York City. He entered an empty room, pulled out his pocket watch, and he sat down and he watched as five minutes went by, 10 minutes went by, and 20 minutes went by. It looked like no one was going to come. As the minutes ticked by, the solitary waiter wondered if everything he had been doing was a mistake. For three months, he'd been visiting boarding houses, those are hotels, shops, offices, inviting people to this 88-year-old Dutch North Church in Fulton Street in New York. He'd been inviting businessmen to come pray. The church had fallen on slim days. Old families had moved away. Businesses were now uh, teeming with immigrants and laborers coming in that didn't speak the same language and all these different things were happening. Other churches had gotten out of the city and many had told that Dutch church to shut down, to throw in the towel, but they wanted to make a last ditch effort. So they hired a lay missionary man to come and start visiting people. And so they paid him a thousand dollars, a whopping thousand dollars a year to go around and visit. That means go invite people to church. And so they picked a man, an un unassuming man, named Jeremiah C. Lamphere. He was a merchant. He had no experience about visiting people and inviting them to church. He was 49 years old. He gave up his trade, his position, to knock doors for that little salary. The going was slow. A few families would come, but often he would return to his room, weary and discouraged. He would spread out his sorrows before the Lord. Lamphere learned a thing or two about prayer. He never failed uh, to draw strength from God in his time of prayer. And while, while going in his rounds of visitation, he had this idea the Lord put in his heart in his prayer time that businessmen might like to get away for a short period of the day to pray just once a week, maybe between 12 and one o'clock. And so he began with permission of the church to hand out flyers and handbills and began to invite businessmen to come to the church to pray. And so here he was waiting. He waited 10 minutes and then 10 more. The minute hand pointed to 12.30, and at last he heard a step on the stairs. One man came, then another. By the end of the day, there were six people there. After a few minutes of praying, the meeting was dismissed, 
and they decided they would meet the following Wednesday. That small meeting was in no way extraordinary. By the way, when God moves, it doesn't usually start out extraordinary. It starts out in the smallest things. There was no great outpouring of the Spirit that day, but Lamphere had no way of knowing what was about to happen. Looking back, historians can see that the conditions at that time for revival were ripe. It was the 1800s, the golden age of religious interest. And and by this time, the nation had lost its interest in God, lost its interest in religion. God was becoming a second thought. The West had opened up. Gold was discovered. People started flocking to California in search of being rich quick. The railroad was a craze. Slavery was a hot issue at the time. Fortunes ballooned. Faith was beginning to diminish as men fell in love with their wallets. Lanfear did not know much about these things. All he knew was that men stood in need of prayer. The next Wednesday, 20 men came to this hour-long prayer meeting. The following Wednesday, 40 came. Lanfear decided to make the, day, the meeting daily as it was growing, and they took over a larger room. That very week, that very week on Wednesday, October the 14th, our nation was staggered by the, one of the worst financial panics of history. Banks closed, men were out of work, people were committing suicide because they lost their fortunes. The crash uh, definitely had something to do with what would happen as now the Fulton Street meeting uh, had to take over several buildings as they drew crowds of over 3,000 every day to pray. Lawyers and physicians, merchants and clerks. This is in New York City. Bankers and brokers, manufacturers and mechanics, porters, messenger boys, they all came to pray. Draymond would drive up to the curb, tie up their horses, and come in for a few minutes. Rules had to be drawn up. Signs were posted. Brethren are earnestly requested to adhere to a five-minute rule. Men were only allowed to pray for five minutes because they couldn't fit everyone into the prayer meeting. Another placard read, prayers and exhortations not to exceed five minutes in order to give all opportunity. It seems that the Fulton Street Prayer meeting began to strike a nerve and revival began to spread across the country. On November the 5th, 1857, a New York newspaper carried the story about revivals in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, where 400 people came to Christ in just two days. Accounts of local revivals began to appear as religious papers uh, would talk about how the Presbyterians and the Baptists and the Methodists were having revival all across the country. People were coming to Christ in Cincinnati and in Chicago and in other areas. New York had a, a headline one day that read, New York bows in prayer as 10,000 businessmen prayed for one hour in the city center. The revival not only affected the our country, but it also traveled across the Atlantic. Two Irishmen came and attended the prayer meetings and took the vision back home. They shared their vigor for what they had saw. They began to throw themselves into evangelism with a renewed vigor for Christ. William Gibson was one of those men who had visited that prayer meeting, and he wrote in his diary uh, shortly following that immediately there was an aftermath of revival that broke out in Ireland where over 100,000 people came to Christ. Some calculate that over this very short revival, as many as 3% of the United States population were converted to Christ during this time. Over a million people got saved because of a prayer meeting. Sparked out of this, the thought of prayer was the Welsh revival. The Welsh revival was started because a 12-year-old boy named Evan Roberts began to pray for revival every day. 12 years old. How many are 12 today? Any 12-year-olds today? Any 12-year-olds in here today? No 12-year-olds. See, we're not going to have revival. Jack, how old are you? He's 10. Jack told me the other day, he says, I want to be a pastor, preacher. 
Amen. There we go, Daniel. I know you want to be a pastor too. Yeah, he told me the other day, he, says, he said, I'm a, I said, do you want to be a pastor? He said, no, I will be a pastor. Whoa. A 12-year-old boy began to pray. For 13 years, when he was 26 years old, he began to preach in the Welsh streets and saw over 100,000 people come to Christ because of a 12-year-old boy. The first great awakening in the mid-1700s saw some of the greatest things happen for God here in our country. How was the first great awakening start? By prayer. By prayer. Whitfield would pray all night before he would preach sometimes. The, uh, the folks would say that the, the floorboards in his room were worn out from his knees. The wall was stained from his breath. Sometimes Whitfield would stay in his rooms for weeks at a time, praying for God to do something. You see, the problem with us is we think that we can do something, and the truth is we can do nothing. Isn't that what John 15 says? Abide in me, and I in you, for without me ye can do nothing. And so we don't pray because we think that it's on us, and it's not on us. Jonathan Edwards, also a great preacher during the first uh, uh, Great Awakening, he said this, is God's will through his wonderful grace that the prayers of his saints should be one great and principal means of carrying on the designs of Christ's kingdom in the world. But other than pray, what can we do? The second Great Awakening shook two continents for Christ. How did that get started? By a man who prayed. One man in particular named Charles Finney, who was a Presbyterian, began to become weary of the Calvinism, the hyper-Calvinism that was taking over, even in, the, even in those times where, where people would literally say, it doesn't matter if you tell someone else about Christ, because God's already chosen who would go to heaven and who would not. Hyper-Calvinism began to come in and, and destroy, and people began to, our hearts would grow cold towards Christ. Preachers stopped preaching the gospel in their pews, and they, they stopped giving invitations. And Charles Finney said, hey, hold on a second. In my Bible, uh, there's, a, there's a book called Romans chapter number 10, and in verse 9 and 10 it says, if thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon, I said, for whosoever shall call upon, I said, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. May I just say to you, every time in the Bible you find the word believed, you just say, I'm not a Calvinist right there. Because it's your responsibility to believe for salvation. And all God's people said, amen. amen. If you don't know what Calvinism is, forget everything I just said and we'll move on, all right? But Charles Finney, even today, is hated by the Presbyterian church. If you read, it's, just, it's amazing because he went against them. Even though he stayed Presbyterian, he began to preach that man needed to repent for their salvation. And so God shook uh, America, the American colonies at that time, and God shook England because of people like Charles Finney. But Charles Finney was a man of prayer. He said this, commenting about the Fulton Street Revival. He said, there is such a great confidence in the prevalence of prayer that the people very extensively seem to prefer the meeting for prayer over the meeting for preaching. The general impression seems to be that we have had instruction. Listen to this, please. Don't let this go over your head. We have had instruction until we are hardened, and it is time to pray. Church family, I believe that God can and wants to open the coffers of revival in America again. I believe that God wants to open his coffers of revival on this church and in our lives today. Brother Lunday, if you want to see revival take place in Brazil, that's a big country. But if God's going to do that, it's going to be through prayer. And listen, may I say this? If God, if we're going to see revival in our city, if we're going to see revival in our state, boy, we love to talk about uh, how uh, this government this and this governor that. We love to badmouth this person and that person. We love to, uh, We love to be discouraged about the sin that we see around us. But may I just say today, What's the response for us to pray? We must pray. How many of you recognize there's not a thing we can do for our country? I, there's nothing I can do, but there's something he can do. Prayer leverages the hand of God.
Church family, I believe that God is willing and looking for a reason to pour out his spirit, to stir our hearts and bring revival. How is it possible? The Fulton Street revival was not on slick marketing. It wasn't a four-step guide to grow your church. It was not those things. It was not ever supposed to be. It wasn't intended to be. It began as a thirst for lost souls and a conviction that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. Every day of my life, I have a, a new thing come across my email or, or my, uh, the Facebook I see advertised, five steps to grow your church in 30 days. Da, 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 or your money back guaranteed. You know, all these things. You know, four, 14 proven strategies, uh, this podcast and that podcast. Can I just tell you the best growth strategy of a, of a church is, is get on our knees and pray. Just pray. Listen, uh, this church is here today not because of any man, that's for sure. It's not here today because anybody did anything. It's only here today because of the grace of God. And so what's the answer? The simple truth is that revival comes through earnest prayer. And this brings us to this verse. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their land. I said it this morning. I didn't plan on saying it, but I, there's a popular preacher in America today. He's in Atlanta today. You know his name if I said it like that. He said that this verse doesn't apply to us. He said this verse doesn't count. We should, you guys, he goes, he said, Pastor, I read the book. Pastor, you shouldn't be using this book, this verse. Let me just tell you something real quick. The same God that wrote that, that verse is the same God that I serve. How about you, anybody else? The same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And while this was written to the Jewish people, for the Jewish people, it's for our example, and we ought to take heed to what it says. If my people, let me give you number two. So if we remember the revivals of the past, what next? We need to reject the rebellion of the present. Reject the rebellion of the present Fire cannot burn unless it's ignited, and it cannot continue without fuel. Revival fires burn in our hearts. It must be added. To, it must, it must, we must add the fuel of prayer if we want revival to be in our hearts today. We must pray. Prayer is both the ignition and fuel for revival. Prayer brings revival, and revival begets more prayer. And listen, I'm not talking about, listen, I'm not talking about five minutes a day. I'm not talking about right before you uh, go to bed or right before you eat your food. I'm talking about sacrificing time in your life, time, blocks of time to pray and ask God to move in your heart, to do something in your heart. Maybe today you're discouraged. Maybe today you're depressed. Maybe today you can't figure out what's going on. Listen, I want to ask you, when was the last time you spent time with God in prayer? I'm not talking about five minutes. I'm not talking about bringing a list to God and saying, God, I need a new television. And uh, God, I can't pay my Comcast bill. And my sister keeps using my Netflix and I can't watch it. And so I'm not talking about bringing a list like that. I'm talking about getting on your knees and saying, God, I need you. I need you to do something. I need revival. Would you revive me again and pray and spend time with the Lord? Righteousness, Righteousness exalteth the nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. How many of you here would agree with me that America's in a mess? Anybody agree with that? Raise both hands and wave them in the air like you just don't care. I'm telling you, we got a mess going on. We got a mess. I don't discount the mess. I don't discount it. But listen, God does not chide the heathen in 2 Chronicles chapter number 7. God does not say if the heathen will humble themselves. That's not what he said. I know you've heard this message before. You've probably heard it a hundred times, but I want to preach it again. No, if my people... If my people, which are called by my name, hey, if you call yourself a Christian, he's talking to you, my friend. 
If my people, if my people, God is not concerned with the LGBT community. God is not concerned with all those things. Yes, it's an affront to him and abomination and all those things. But I'm telling you, that's not God's concern. God's concern is his people. It's us. Will we bow? Will we humble ourselves and pray? Will we seek his face and turn from our wicked ways? There's a word in this verse that I love. It's the first word. What's the first word of verse 14? I love the word if in this verse. How many of you have kids? Raise your hand if you have kids. How many of you ever tell your kids if, for instance, um, I might not give you up for adoption if you clean your room? (laughs) Or... (laughs) The list goes on. Uh, how about if you're, res- if you're responsible, I'll, I'll help you get your driver's license. Or if you do your chores, I'll let you play video games. That's a wonderful word, the word if. You know what that word if tells me? God gave me this in my prayer time last night. It's not in the notes. You know what that word if tells me? Number one, we have a choice. We have a choice. If my people. You have a choice today. You could walk out this room, forget everything I said, and go to in and out eat a double-double animal style, and you'll be fine and nothing, nothing ever happens, or that word if, or that word if, if my people, or you'll choose, you'll choose. We have a choice today. Listen, revival is a choice. We often say, God, send revival. Send revival, God, send revival. God's saying, I will send revival when you choose revival. You see, what we do is we come to God and we say, God, we, we pray obligatorily, God, send revival, send revival, and yet we have sin in our hearts and in our lives. God, send revival, send revival, and yet we don't bow before him and seek his face. We don't pray. We don't ask for it. Listen, I love this word, if, because you know what else it tells me? Not only do we have a choice, but Brother Soda, we have a chance. Amen. Amen. We got a chance. You ever mess up when you were a kid and you're glad when your parents gave you a second chance? Well, I tell you what, if you, if you, if you, here's what I, here's what I see here. We have another chance. Church family, listen, we have another chance. We have another chance. If my people, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Listen, we have a choice and we have a chance. We have an opportunity. How many want to see, how many of you want to see America turn her, her face back to God? How many want to see that? How many want to see America, instead of declining, actually start to incline towards morality? How many want to see in America more churches started and more people come to Christ? How many want to see in America these things change? We have a chance. Listen, Jesus is coming back soon. I hope you're listening this morning. Jesus is coming back soon, but he hasn't come yet. And so we still have a chance. Hey, listen, I know, listen, God might destroy America. Boy, I tell you, some people might not understand this preaching, but I'll tell you, God has got a hold of my heart right now. I'm telling you, listen to me this morning. God might destroy America for what she's doing, and he may, but he hasn't done it yet. And so we have a chance. We have a chance to humble ourselves. No, you say, well, if the the so-and-so party would just get, figure this thing out and come around. Listen, it has nothing to do with politics. Well, if the White House, if this house, if that house, if they would just pass some legislation, this is the problem. It's not about the, the, the governor. It's not about the president. It's not about all those. It's about us. It's us. If my people, we have a chance. I said, we have a chance. Listen. We have a chance to turn Manteca back to God. Our city. I had this thought the other day. Wouldn't it be neat if we had a citywide prayer meeting? I wonder how many Christians would come to the citywide prayer meeting. I had, a th- I had another thought. I-, I won't share it with you. You'll scare you half to death. But I'm saying, wouldn't it be amazing if this city turned their hearts back to Christ? 
and the neighbors. And listen, if we would turn, if we would just turn back to Christ, maybe our neighbor would see it and come to Christ himself. Maybe our coworker would see a difference in us and get saved. Oh, may I just say today, Christian, may I just say this morning, we have a chance. We have a choice. I need to, I need to hurry. Let me give you number three. Let me give you number three. All right, so we must remember the revivals of the past. We must reject this rebellion of the present. What does that mean? What does it mean to reject the rebellion of the present? What does it mean to do these things? Then number three, we need to revive the remedy for the problem. You see, the problem is there's a problem with God's people. They're cleaning up the baptistry room, so don't worry about that. There's a dead possum back there. But anyway, uh, I'm just kidding. There's no dead possum. I'm just teasing. How many saw the picture I put on? of that little possum, man, he was cute, he was about that big, and I was petting him, and, and, and so we, we adopted him now. He's a Baptist possum. But anyway, uh, I'm just kidding. Revive the remedy. You know what the problem is, and, and let's just be honest, the problem is my people. What is the remedy? What is the remedy? The remedy is simple. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Everything that we need is right there neatly in that verse. The word if tells us that we have a chance, we have a choice. A few months ago, I began to, just to be very frank, I began to get a little bit frustrated with, with just my own prayer life. I didn't feel like God was answering prayers, and I just felt stuck. Anybody ever get there? And I felt like, man, what's going on? I thought, Lord, is it me? And by the way, if you ever ask the Lord if it's you, it probably is you. <laughs> I said, God, is it me? And God said, yep, it's you. And God began to do a work in my heart. I won't go into all the details. I don't have time. But, but basically, he began to work me over this thing of prayer. And I began to realize that I prayed as a pastor, but I wasn't a praying pastor. I prayed. I prayed my lists. I prayed. I did those things that I was supposed to do. But I recognized I had come to the end of myself. And I recognized there needed to be a shift in my life. If God was going to do something in Manteca, if God was going to do something in our church, if God was going to do something in my own family, then I needed to learn how to pray. And so I began to pray, and this message is not about me. Please don't get me wrong. But I began to pray, and God began to break my heart for my foolishness and my, my pettiness and the things that I struggle with. And by the way, if you pray and ask God to show you, you just be ready for the dump truck. If you pray and ask God to show you what you're struggling with, he has no problem doing it. And I began to, to really, uh, God began to wick out of me some things that I needed to be wicked out of me. And may I just say, uh, I, need, I wanted to try to transfer and communicate to you that shift that needs to take place in our lives, that shift of just being a praying Christian, to, not a Christian that prays. I'm talking about, Lord, thank you for this food, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm talking about, Lord, help us have a good day tomorrow, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm talking about not the pre-recorded, pre-rehearsed, said over and over again. We don't even think about it kind of a praying Christian. I'm talking about a Christian that says, instead, Instead of sleeping in tomorrow, I'm going to get up and I'm going to spend time with God. Instead of watching five, six, seven hours of Netflix, I want to spend at least an hour with God. I'm talking about the Christian that doesn't go fishing or golfing or anything every single day of the week, but actually spends some time praying and talking to God. I'm talking about Christians who put aside, who make a shift to not just be a Christian that prays, but be a praying Christian. Because if we want to see revival, we must do this. Somebody once said that God is pent up revival. God is ready to revive. You say, what's the remedy then? What's the remedy? The remedy is in the verse. If we will humble ourselves, humble ourselves and seek his face. How many of you, when you were a kid, you wanted to know if your parents, if you were right with your parents, your parents, everything was good. And so you wanted to see their face. So you kind of look at their face to see where they're at. How many know what I'm talking about? 
And you see your mom, you know, you see her face and then you ran. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, no. And so that's the face. And now that you're a married man, you know the face. You know what I'm talking about, guys? And so anyway, uh, I'm just teasing. And so uh, you want to see that there's something about the face, something about that joy or, or you know, eh. and Gavin right now, one of my sons, he's got special needs. He loves, he loves eyebrows. And so he, he comes and he goes, dad, eyebrows. And I do that and he does it. And then I do that. Eh, eh. But boy, I tell you, you know who knows when I'm upset? Gavin knows. I don't even have to say anything. He just comes up and starts rubbing my arm. Are you okay, dad? <laughs> you okay? Because it's my face. Seek his face. What is God's face towards us right now, towards you right now in your life? What is his face towards you? Pray, seek his face. And oh, how about this one? Turn from our wicked ways. Turn from our wicked ways. May I just say this morning, the Bible says we're all sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you're here today, I hate to break it to you. You're a sinner. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? I'm a sinner also. Brother Asprelli is one of the biggest sinners I've ever met. You got to meet him after church, but we're all sinners. We all break God's laws, but, and listen, there's a penalty for that sin. The Bible tells us that the wage of sin is death. All the sin that we've done in our life has a penalty. It has a payment. The wage we get on earth, by the way, uh, you drink yourself, you can drink yourself to death. That's a wage of sin. I said, you can drink yourself to death. That's a wage of sin. You can cause problems and issues, but, but there's also a much, much more sinister wave of wage of sin. The Bible says in Revelation that death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. That death, that, that fire, that death is the, the, the wage of sin. Our sin costs that. Jonathan Edwards, Edwards preached his message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And, and if you read the story, it's amazing. People were literally holding on to the post because he preached things like this. He would say things like sinners are swinging over the mouth of hell by a thread and the flames would lick up. And he said it could singe the rope at any time and fall into hell for eternity. And people would hold on as he would preach. And may I just say today, just as revival is a choice for the Christian, salvation is a choice for the sinner. Maybe you're here today. You don't know Christ today. Listen, can I just say you could leave today. You could be mad at me. I don't want you to be. I want you to like me, but you could leave today and be upset about what I say. But can I just tell you something? Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. Well, but God commended this love toward us. That means he demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us at our worst place. He came, he died for me. He loved me so much for God. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Christ has done everything he can. He's, he's paid for your sin. Would you choose him today? Would you choose him today? Come to him, say, Jesus, please save me. We're all sinners, but there's a difference between sin and living a wicked way. Some of us in this room this morning, we are not going to see revival. You will not receive revival until you turn from your wicked way. Some today are living their life in drunkenness and immorality, doing things they should not do outside of marriage. Some in this room today have the sin of lukewarm spirits, Whatever happens, happens. These are wicked ways. While we all sin, and I'm so thankful, 1 John 1, 9, if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to what? Jesus is waiting to forgive your sin, but you need to be ready to turn from it. May I just say today, I know it's quiet in here. I know preachers don't like talking about sin anymore. So be it. We're not going to see revival unless we turn from our wicked ways. I said, listen, there are people outside of these walls dying and going to hell for eternity because Christians won't turn from their wicked ways. 
God is staying his hand of revival off of the church because Christians are living in sin. Sin is not a big deal. Well, what, what about grace? What, shouldn't, doesn't grace cover all the sins? Yes, grace did abound. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. But shall we continue in sin? Romans chapter number seven, verse one. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul said what? God forbid. No, God, God did not save us from sin so that we could serve sin. Listen, you're not a servant to that sin anymore. God, Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you could be free from that sin so that you could serve God and not reap to yourself the wages of sin, but actually reap to yourself the wages of holiness and righteousness in your life. In other words, God saved you so that you could serve him and have the wonderful blessings of living a Christian life in him and not serve sin. This is the remedy. This is the remedy. I believe that if we want to see revival, we have to turn from our wicked ways. We need to pray. We need to seek his face. If we desire to see God move in our hearts and the hearts of people and the hearts of our kids and the hearts of the city around us and the hearts of our country, if we desire this true revival, then there must be a shift. We must pray. I have in your notes today, I won't go over them, several things I'd like to do as a church about being a praying church. One of them includes praying before service, weekly prayer uh, meetings. Uh, there's 168 warrior prayer thing that I'd like to start. We're going to talk about more of that this week, but I don't have time right now. But there's many things that I'd like to see happen to our church to shift from a church that prays to a praying church. And how many say amen to that? We need to be a church that prays. We need to be a church that prays. Lastly, I just want to make mention here, as we commit to our personal growth in prayer, I understand this morning there's some that might think that your prayer life is the way that it should be. And for you, I say, praise the Lord. I'm glad that you do. But for most of us, our prayer lives need work. And all God's people said, for most of us, our prayer lives need work. And I would ask you, church family, to begin a journey of a greater prayer life. In your life, perhaps your prayer life is haphazard, distracted, or inconsistent. I would challenge you to set aside time each day, consistently, intentionally, fervently focused prayer. Maybe your prayer life right now is five minutes. Would you consider increasing it to 10? Maybe your prayer life right now is an hour. Would you consider an hour and a half? Would you consider growth in your prayer life? Perhaps today your prayer life could go from being a monologue to a dialogue. You say, what does that mean? What that means is instead of going to God and say, God, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need Jesus' name, amen, to God, what do I need? Would you speak to my heart? God, show me where I'm wrong. Show, show me what to do next. God, I don't know what to do. Anybody here not to know what to do next besides me? <laughs> I constantly feel like I'm saying, God, I don't know what to do next, God. Oh, but listen to him. Have a prayer time. Have a prayer life. It's not just about having a laundry list, but spending enough time with God to ask him to speak to you, to reveal things to you, to direct you, to give you a sense of his control in your life. This is what prayer is and should be. I read this past week. It wasn't for the message. It was just, it was interesting. It came across my desk somehow. But I read about a pastor and a church in a Baptist church in uh, it's Southern Baptist, but it's a Baptist church in, um, in uh, Tennessee. And the article caught my attention. The article said, church, Tennessee church baptizes over a thousand since Christmas. I thought, that's interesting. And so I read the article. I don't have time to talk about the whole article, but it's true that church is seeing a revival in that church. People are getting baptized almost by the hundreds every week in that church. And I began to read about the story about it, what, what had happened. By the way, you say, well, God can't do a revival in a different kind of church than ours. Uh, that's one of, one of our problems right there. God can do whatever he wants to do. Amen. And so I read this article and 
And really the bottom line was the pastor said, and and I'll cut it short. He said this, basically, he said, I realized I was doing everything on my own. And he said, I began to pray. That was it. That was it. It's so simple. He said, I began to pray for hours and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And he said, then our church started praying and then God is doing this thing in their church. And, and by the way, I just, I, I, I want to be at a place in our church where God can move when he wants to. A man named Ravenhill said this, no man is greater than his prayer life. No man is greater than his prayer life. A pastor who is not praying is playing. This was written back a long time ago. A pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. Poverty stricken as the church is today in many things, she is the most stricken here in the place of prayer. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. We have many players, but few prayers. Many singers, but few clingers. Lots of pastors, but few wrestlers. Many fears and few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, but few intercessors. Many writers and few fighters. If we are failing in anything, we are failing. If we are failing here in prayer, we are failing everywhere. Matthew Henry said this, when God intends great mercy on his people, the first thing he does is set them a praying. What happens when we remember the past, the revivals of the past? What happens when we reject the rebellion of the present? What happens when we revive the remedy of the problem? Guess what happens? And most certainly we will reap the rewards of his promise. You know what I like here in this verse? I like the word if, but I really like the word then. The Bible says, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. What's the next word? Then. Say that again. Then. What's the word? Then. If and what? Let's say the word if and then say the word then. So I just want to make sure you're still awake. If and then, I'm almost done. If and then, oh, I love this word then. Listen, this is cause and effect. This is God's promise. God says, listen, if my people will do this, then I will hear them and I will heal their land. I want to see my land healed. I want to see the sickness of sin that has been brought upon America healed. I want to see families that uh, have been destroyed because of, of sin and because of all these things healed. I want to see that in my day. Listen, I'm going to die soon. and I, Not soon, but hopefully one of these days. You're going to die one of these days. We're all going to die. We're all going to be put in the grave. But wouldn't it be awesome before we pass off the scene, Brother Renison, to see it then, to see it then. God, to do something in our midst. God, would you move, please? I don't believe in predictions. I don't believe in setting dates. I believe that's a waste of time. But there have been men who have been great men of prayer that say that before Jesus returns in the tribulation, there will be one more great revival. I hope, I hope that they are right. They say that as many as a billion souls could be saved before Jesus returns. I don't know, but I certainly hope so. But how dare we think that God is not interested in reviving our church. How dare we think that God is not interested in reviving our country again? Oh, he is. Revival isn't just possible. It's a promise. If my people, we have a choice, we have a chance, we'll humble ourselves and pray, turn from our wicked ways, then, then he will hear from heaven and heal our land. Every head bowed and every eye closed today.